attention, social justice warriors. If you're looking for a safe space where your delicate ears won't be offended, this isn't it. This is the Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Looking for adventure. 10.08, hour number two is underway. We're going to forego the traditional rig and open to the hour so that we have a little bit more time with our good friend who joins us now on this Tuesday, the 16th morning of the third month of the year of our Lord 2021. And I, of course, refer to Peter Kersenow, member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, former member of the now-defunct 1776 Commission. He is a Cleveland attorney, is a, is a, the host of the Kersenow Report. He writes for the National Review and manages a law practice on the side. Peter, good morning. How are you, sir? Bob, doing pretty well here. It's just uh, 328 days to the Super Bowl, and sometime between now and then, I'm going to play at least one play for the Cleveland Browns. You know, I was looking at all of the free agent signings yesterday as the free agent period uh, got underway, and I, I kept checking for Kersenow on the wire there to see if he was picked up by the Browns, and I, I, I didn't see anything yet. Are we? Are you it's a, it's a signing bonus issue. Yeah, it's a signing bonus issue. Uh, you know, uh, I'm looking at seven figures. They're still looking at six. You've got to know your value. You've got to know your worth, right? That's that's yeah. one of the most important things in the world. Know your worth, and don't take any, don't take a penny less. There you go. Hey, Pete. In all seriousness. <clears throat> I wasn't going to do this, but um, I'm just such a huge fight fan, and I don't know where you are on that, but uh, the passing of Mar- Marvelous uh, Marvin oh, yeah. Hagler uh, struck me. He's just 66 years of age, still don't know what happened. Tommy Hearn said it was a reaction to the vaccine. His wife said, no, that's not true, and we don't want to politicize his death for any reason. We're not going to talk about what caused or anything of that nature, and basically said private Marvin didn't like funerals, and we're not having one for him either because he hated those things. But, man, what a beast um, in boxing history. Any thoughts? Well, uh, you know, I watched so many of Marvin Hagler's fights and Thomas Hitman Hearn's fights and Sugar Ray Leonard fights, and, in fact, even ran into Sugar Ray Leonard in, of all places, a 7-Eleven <laughs> in Maryland uh, shortly after he fought uh, one of his classic fights um, against, I think it was the Hitman Hearn's. I don't even remember now. It was back in, you know, 35 years ago. But nonetheless, they, they fought in 81. Their first fight, uh, which was their best, was 81. Yeah, this was a little bit later than that, but okay. uh, it was it was really th- those fights were classics. They were amazing. Hagler versus Hearns, uh, you know, the reach advantage uh, was incredible. You know, uh, I can't remember Hearns's height. They were both only about 155, 156 pounds only, but they could hit like Mack trucks. But um, it's a shame that traditional boxing has fallen the way it has. I mean, we still have some very fine boxers, but, you know, it's been overtaken by UFC, and justifiably so. It's, that's very enjoyable to watch, too. Sure. But uh, there's nothing like classic boxing matches. Uh, back in the day, you know, I used to pretend to be a boxer a little bit, got my butt handed to me. You really start to appreciate, you know, the, the, as they say, the sweet science of pugilism. The golden age, in my opinion, was that mid-'80s period when the, the, the you know, that golden quartet, if you will, the fights between Leonard, Hearns, Hagler, and Duran, all about you know, every miss, every way that you can match them up. They fought each other, and they did it multiple times, with the exception of Hagler and Hearns only once, and Leonard and Her- Hagler only once. But, uh, you know, multiple fights among the four of them. They were the greatest. That was the greatest era, in my opinion, especially coming off of Ali. <clears throat> 
and his career, and of course it was 74 that he, uh, you know, maybe maybe his pinnacle when he beat uh, Foreman in the Rungle, Rumble in the Jungle, but that period of time is just, was so formative for me as a fight fan, and I had such a deep respect for Hagler, until he lost to Sugar Ray and then would not fight again. He never fought another bout after that and would yep. not accept a rematch, and every time Leonard would ask him for a rematch, or offer him rather, since Leonard won, and said, we could make millions. Just come on, let's do it. Aram would say, tell Ray to get a life. He was done. He was so furious when he lost that fight to Leonard. That made me sad about uh, uh, Marvin Hagler, and for a lot of people, that's going to be the legacy. Well, you know, I was. everyone was looking for a rematch. I had a slightly, maybe maybe the same take, not, not different, uh, just kind of a, uh, on a different slant maybe. Um, Hagler was a very prideful person, and he was his own man, and I kind of respected the fact that, you know, he thought, a lot of people thought that the fight didn't end the way it was supposed to end. And I think Hagler simply said, look, um, I'm not playing this game anymore. You know, Sugar Ray Leonard was viewed as the pretty boy. He was everybody's uh, champ. Uh, you know, I loved Hagler. And uh, Hitman Hearns, too. You know, and I, look, I, I like Leonard, too. I, mean, I agree with you. It was a golden age of boxing. For me, the golden age of boxing, there were a couple of golden ages. I mean, you take a look at the 1950s to early 60s, take a look at the late 60s with the advent of Muhammad Ali, and then you had Sonny List. I mean, not Sonny Liston. Um, uh, Frazier. The, the uh, Frazier, Frazier fight, Norton, you know, those Norton. were classics, you know, Thrill and yeah, I mean, some of those can't be replicated. But um, I wish it would return again, because I think the world of sports has lost a lot without uh, boxing being first and foremost in uh, the pantheon of American sports. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it was something, and we'll wrap it here because we got more important things to get to. But, Pete, it was something, you know, the, when the heavyweight champion of the world carried with it something that you can't describe. I mean, I remember, you know, I was a child, so I shouldn't say I remember it. I, I look back on it, and the way things were when Muhammad Ali had his title stripped because he wouldn't go to Vietnam. And, you know, then Joe Frazier's the champ, and then, you know, Ali's reinstated, and he wants his title back. It meant so much to, to people. It was like a big societal thing. You know, who's the heavyweight champion of the world now? I, if you ask... If you ask, you know, a thousand, you know, males our age or, or even, you know, in, in the 20 or 30 year radius of our age right now, who the heavyweight champion of the world is, they won't know. They won't have a clue, uh, who right. the champion or champions of the multiple belts are now. And that's, uh, I don't know. I just, I lament, uh, the passage of that golden era. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Okay. Let's get uh, to more important issues. So Case Western Reserve University, you wrote, uh, for National Review has gone woke. And by going woke, they have gone anti-white. And they are not shy about it. They are celebrating being anti-white. Tell us what happened. Well, this is peculiar. I was contacted by some case students who were alarmed by this, and it strikes me that so many deans of various law schools, universities, are completely oblivious to the fact that, you know, many of the things that they're doing are viewed by all students, but especially white students, as being, quote-unquote, unwelcoming. You know, the, the current uh, rage is to be welcoming and inclusive. And how inclusive is it when you are telling directly a certain group of students that there are too many of them there? And that's basically what they were saying. They were, say, they were championing the fact, uh, th- these two co-deans of Case Western Reserve Law School had sent a, an email around to all of their students lauding the fact that pursuant to a study conducted by a professor at the University of Dayton Law School, <clears throat> excuse me, by the name of Renelia Randall, that they ranked, meaning Case ranked 144 out of 200 law schools in terms of excessive whiteness, meaning that they were ranking really low on the number of 
overall white students at the university compared to at the law school compared to other law schools. And they were, um, you know, proud of that fact. Now, to say it's tone deaf is probably the least pejorative thing you can say about this. There are so many levels to this that, you know, it'd be, you could spend the next several hours to unpack it. But first of all, this is a law school. Not to say it excuses any other school if they engage in similar conduct, but again, the presumption is that a law school understands the law and also understands offshoots or consequences related to the law, particularly with respect to the law of discrimination. And indeed, academia is suffused with diversity, equity, and inclusion these days, and yet they were completely oblivious to the fact that saying something like this would have an adverse effect on many of its students. I mean, you always, it gets tiresome, Bob, to do the old gymnastics of substituting a race to determine you know, what the tone of a particular comment is. Right. But if you were to say, or if a dean were to say, hey, great news, guys, well, um, we are very low on the ranking of excessive blackness. In other words, we don't have too many black students here. Isn't that great? That's a I wonderful. Mean, it, would be, it would be a national firestorm, a national firestorm, as is evidenced by another article that I wrote just recently with respect to what happened at Georgetown Law School, where a professor was fired there for comments that were perfectly innocuous and, frankly, factual, but you're not allowed to acknowledge facts anymore these days. Uh, but nonetheless, getting back to case, uh, it did have an effect on their law students. It will continue to have effect on their law students. And what case said was, or not, not case, but the researcher, again, another professor of law who had put together this survey said that, well, you know, if you have an excess number of white students, then that school is not preparing its students for a diverse marketplace. In other words, saying that whites apparently can't represent properly persons of color. Um, well, is the obverse true? Can black or Hispanic or Asian law students represent people of a different race than they? Of course well, not. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> truly astonishing. The, the tone deafness, I think, struck me more than anything else, but it's par for the course. We see that more and more and more often because we've got is anti-racism, alleged anti-racism now has suffused the curricula of many of our institutions, educational institutions, but as, as well as many of our other corporations, uh, institutions, you name it, even the military. And this anti-racism, if you pause and think about it, is nothing more than Racism. Racism. It yeah, it, there, there's no question about it. racism. Is 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 obviously you know the argument goes that you can't be racist unless you are in a position of power. If you're in a position of power or authority over others, then you can be racist. But if you are in the minority, you cannot be racist. So it's impossible to be racist against whites. Even if, and Pete, this is where I would go with this case story. If I'm a white law school applicant at Case Western Reserve and I get rejected, I, I mean, I can't tell you how fast I'd come to find an attorney to say, you know, I, I guarantee you that I have been discriminated against because they have made it public, made it public that we desire to be less white. We want to have as many black law students as we have white law students because that would bring equity. And that's what their goal here. So it's it's the opposite of affirmative action. Well, not opposite. It's to to another level, perhaps. Affirmative action means giving people who are minorities more opportunities to be in places that, that might have been off limits to them or. Off
reach, but now it's specifically not just giving opportunities to some, but denying opportunities to others based on their desire to be less white uh, as, as a student population. What's interesting about this, Bob, is that, you know, we singled out Case because they had the, the, the bad judgment of sending out such a blatant email like this. That yeah, was they publicized it, right. Exactly. But you can be sure that at many other law schools, Maybe they were a little bit more circumspect about it, but they made it known if they were ranking in the bottom in terms of whiteness to their student body that, hey, look, look what we're doing. We don't have too many of those pesky white people around. We've got a lot of people of color here. I'm sure that's happening all over the place. You can see it happening in corporate C-suites where they're constantly touting the fact that they're hiring more people of, quote, unquote, people of color. Um, you know, fine, all that is good, but the bottom line here is the ideal of the United States is non-discrimination. It used to be, and that has changed 180 degrees just in the last few years, and, yeah. and mainly since the George Floyd incident, it used to be that colorblindness was the ideal. The Martin Luther King standard was the ideal, judging by content of character versus color of skin. That's been completely not, not, yeah. Now colorblindness is considered racist. You have, to be, you have to be color-visioned, if that's the opposite of color-blinded. You ha- color-blind, you have to be color-visioned. You have to see color and see it for its disparity, its inequities, the problems because of it, etc. And if you say you're color-blind and you see everybody the same way, which used to be the goal, you are a racist. It's impossible to understand, but it's real. Peter, stay there. We'll talk more about this, including the Georgetown story that you mentioned, coming up on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1025, let's continue now with Peter Kirsten out on AM 1420, The Answer. Pete, I want to uh, play this 40 seconds of the um, Zoom meeting that was held between Professors Sandra Sears at Georgetown and David Batson, um, which has been described as being openly racist on a Zoom call between the two professors. Let's listen. They were a bit jumbled. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best way I can put it. It's like, okay, let me reason through that, what you just said, kind of thing. Yeah, right, right. unfortunately. And you know what? I hate to say this. I end up having this, you know, angst every semester that a lot of my lower ones are blacks. Happens almost every semester. <laughs> and it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> you know. Get some really good ones, but there are also usually some that are just plain at the bottom. It drives me crazy. All right. Um, so she's explaining to the other professor about her classroom performance, and she's talking about her students and how it makes her feel bad. She literally says at the end that uh, a good number of the ones at the bottom of the ranking are black. Um, she didn't say they're at the bottom because they're dumb or because blacks are dumb or because of anything having to do with their skin color, just recognizing the disparity of performance. Peter Kersenow, she was fired for that. And the update to that story, which I don't know if you uh, followed up on or not, is the professor who was listening to her, Batston, was forced to resign because he failed to correct her. He failed to say to her, 
Why are you saying that? That's not true. It can't be. She didn't even say anything except to, here's the way my, my classroom breaks down. The ones at the bottom are oftentimes my black students. And as you wrote, for National Review, I guess stating that fact is a racist, uh, uh, racist thing to do. Go ahead. Yeah, increasingly that's becoming the case. You can't cite facts. You can't acknowledge realities or facts. And virtually every professor out there understands a stark reality. And there's a host of reasons for it, starting with, I mean, you can, you can talk about family formation, you can talk about substandard schools, but the evidence has been plain for a half century. There's tons and tons of data on this, and uh, in fact, everybody knows it, that black students aren't performing as well as white students or Asian students. And it's by a significant margin. It's not even close. And it happens at almost every grade level. Um, whether it's, you know, K through 12, whether it's college, whether it's uh, postgraduate studies, you know, law schools, the disparity is significant. It is not small. Would that it would be so that it was small, but it's significant. And rather than address the reasons for such disparities and help black students along or any other students who are doing poorly, Mm -hmm. what we're doing is simply wrapping the knuckles of those who dare to notice that these things are happening. Until you notice and articulate the problem, you're not going to do anything to rectify it. You're not going to be able to figure out or diagnose what the problem is and how to make it better. But instead, these people are being silenced. And an example such as that of Sandra Sellers, who is the person speaking, being summarily terminated like this, sends a clear message to everybody else. Keep your head down. Do not recognize the problem. Don't even breathe a word of it, which means we're going to continue to paper this over, which is a self-perpetuating cycle, because then what happens is when these black students who are not prepared to compete at that level, for example, at Georgetown or some of these other schools, they are accepting black students who are a whole standard deviation below white and Asian students in terms of academic proficiency. They may be able to compete at, say, another law school, which has entry levels that are maybe a little bit lower, but they can't at that particular level. So what, it, what does it do? It causes more black students to fail. And then that is of itself touted as evidence of systemic discrimination. Bingo. Right. And it's, it's then a self-perpetuating cycle. This is, it's atrocious what is happening here. We are perpetuating this kind of disparity to the detriment of everybody in society, what's, frankly. What's more atrocious, atrocious, though, Pete, is, as I said, the other professor right. it, it was forced to resign because he didn't jump in and tell her she's wrong. You're wrong. Your black students are not at the bottom of your classes. I don't know what your grades look like, but you're wrong. Uh, he, what was he supposed to do? So, Pete, not only are professors or observers who notice these things supposed to remain silent about it rather than acknowledging it and maybe perhaps trying to find a way to help these students who are struggling, if you are in within earshot of somebody complaining or, or commenting on it, you have to leave the room. Uh, disconnect your Zoom call. She's talking about black students. I'm out because if I hear it, and don't publicly object to it, I'm canceled too for yeah, listening. Whole, Think about that, for whole, listening. That's the, whole, that's the whole thing about anti-racism. Now you must, even though there's no evidence, this person, I think you just properly articulated it, Sanders, Sanders appeared as if she was very troubled by this. She wishes right. it wasn't the case. But because he didn't come out and call her a racist, he's gone too. <laughs> Compelled speech is is just as bad as suppressed speech. And he was compelled to say something to her that he didn't, and now he's fired for it. Unbelievable. 
All right, uh, 1031, back with Kirsten now right after this. AM 1420, The Answer. story. There's the mainstream media side, and then there's the truth. You are experiencing the truth. The Bob France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Yes, indeed, you are experiencing the truth according to Kersenow, who stays with us now on AM 1420. The answer to talk about uh, a host of issues. And I was going to go right to Biden here, but I didn't want to, didn't want to make the last uh, half hour of the program full Biden. You never want to go full Biden, right, Pete? Um, <laughs> so uh, that's, that's a bad thing to do. I will go Biden for part of this uh, uh, remaining segment of the show. But, Pete, I want to stay on the issue of anti-white racism. You brought it up in the um, uh, College of Law at uh, Case Western and at Georgetown. Uh, I want to talk about anti-white racism in the newly passed $1.9 trillion spending bill. Rather, I want Leo Terrell to talk about anti-white racism in that spending Industry bill. Into inequality. I want every one of you... Hold on a second. We didn't have that queued up. Let me get to the beginning of Leo Terrell. And what the Democrats have done with this bill, they have turned the farming industry into inequality. I want every one of your viewers to understand what happened. If you're white and you need financial help, and you're a farmer, you don't get it. Not because you don't need the help, but because of skin color. And then you flip it over, and if you're black, brown, or yellow, regardless, because of your skin color, you get the help. That is racist, it's unfair, it's what we fought against for hundreds of years. They have turned racism upside down, and now it's the Democrats who talk up a good game about equality. They're the racists. The bill is unconstitutional. I think we have to help these farmers. We need to challenge that bill in the court of law because it is unconstitutional. It violates the equal protection. And my because they're being discriminated against. When did the farm industry become a source of racial discrimination? And the answer, of course, is when uh, Joe Biden took over with a full Democrat House and Senate. That's when the farm industry became a source of racial discrimination against whites. Peter? I I, I still have to remark uh, about Leo Terrell's uh, kind of conversion. That's not fair. Uh, But he used to be um, a little bit more on the left than before. But he's absolutely right. Um, This is unconstitutional. The state, meaning the government, uh, cannot discriminate on the basis of race unless they have a compelling state interest, and it is narrowly tailored to serve that interest. That is the standard. And under these circumstances, they do not have a compelling state interest. They'd have to show that, for example, black farmers were affirmatively discriminated against. Just societal discrimination alone the Supreme Court has said on a number of occasions is not sufficient to justify or to to meet the standard I've just articulated. This is race discrimination, clear and simple, both in terms of the practical effect and also the legal effect. Um, And what's happening more and more often, because we've been immersed in this whole notion of quote-unquote anti-racism, it's given a license to a number of companies, a number of states, a number of, of agencies of the federal government to overtly discriminate, and it's done without even blinking. Um, this is going to be con- 
continue to be divisive, this will not have a good outcome, uh, simply because we're not hearing a giant hue and cry and marching in the streets about this doesn't mean people haven't noticed. Everyone has noticed. And one of the things that I, I would point to, and I may have mentioned this on the show uh, at some point in the past, but it's interesting to look at where we stand today as a society, where you know, we're constantly being told by the media and the left, but I repeat myself, that uh, the country is suffused with white supremacists, but everyone's hard-pressed hard to find one. You know, I'm on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights for 20 years, and I'm hard-pressed to find more than just a handful of people. But beyond that is when you continue to emphasize race and racial division, when you count by race with respect to almost everything that you do in terms of a governmental program, or societal initiative, uh, or you know what a corporation does, it creates necessarily division. We used to understand that, and we used to understand how dangerous and pernicious that was. And one data point, and I don't have the exact numbers uh, before me right now, but um, the approximation you. is pretty close. But I may have mentioned this before. Back in 2007, Gallup does a, a poll, or used to do a poll every year to measure uh, where we stood as Americans or the attitude of Americans with respect to race relations. Were they bad? Were they average? Were they good? Or were they very good? And in 2007, when Gallup took the poll, um, more, uh, approximately three-quarters of all Americans, and in fact a higher percentage of black Americans than white Americans, thought that race relations in the country were good or very good. Then you fast-forward to 2015, we're in the midst of the first black presidency when, you know, oceans were going to be lowered and all that kind of stuff. Um, that figure had fallen by more than 30 points for blacks and whites. 30 points. That's not statistical noise. That's significant. And I would wager, I haven't seen the, the latest, but I would wager if we continue down this path, this, this poisonous path, it's going to fall even more. And right now, a lot of well-meaning people, they may not say it because they want to be treated like Sandra Sellers at Georgetown, we just discussed, or anyone else who dares to give voice to what most people used to give voice to, discrimination is bad. I guarantee you that a majority of Americans, either quietly, maybe they don't speak about it, maybe only to close friends if they even dare do that, but they are done with this. These are people of goodwill, but they're getting increasingly frustrated and irritated and aggravated with this obsession and race, and we don't tell the truth anymore. The media constantly, they, they blatantly, I, this is amazing, Bob, I've been around for a long, long, long time, and I've never seen a time when the media has just bald-faced lied to us so often about important matters, and we're being told to shut up if we notice it. This will not end well. And when you talk about the media, for example, they're over here just promoting falsehoods on, uh, 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 in a way that is going to cause the, the country, uh, I think many of your listeners probably concur with me. Um, in my lifetime, I've never seen a more serious threat to the viability of the United States than what's been going on over the last few years. It's extraordinary. Americans, and especially American kids, are being told to hate their country. They're being told lies about their country. And never before in history has a country told its populace that it is an awful country and had it have a good outcome. 
It never happens. And we're not going to be insulated from that. And what we're telling these kids in critical race training, in colleges, saying that, you know, it's excessive white, uh, whiteness, this is the kind of stuff that's going to continue to stoke division. It's going to create racism where none existed, and it's going to end badly. Pete, uh, I wanted to move on to Biden stuff. This It's kind of biden anyway, what, what you're talking about. But um, I want to give you this other one. You, maybe you've seen this. Have you heard about it? What brought it up to me is when you mentioned the first black president a few moments ago. You know, the oceans were supposed to lower and everything. It was supposed to be better when the first black president, Barack Obama, took over. And we all know that Barack Obama is half black. He's half white. But he's referred to as full black for the purpose of the, you know, uh, promotion of the, you know, the, the, the black agenda. He's a black president. Okay, whatever. A biracial high school student in Las Vegas at Democracy Preparatory Academy, so obviously a private school, biracial student is failing that class, a mandatory sociology class called Sociology of Change, because he refuses to confess his white dominance at this part of charter school. This course um, required him, along with everyone else, to reveal his race, gender, religious, and sexual identities and then attach labels to them. Students were allegedly asked to undo and unlearn their beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors that stem from oppression. They were trying to force him to take his white half and make that the dominant half. For Barack Obama, the black half was the dominant half. Nobody needs to know that he's part white. He's a black success story. This biracial kid, you're not allowed to know that he's part black. He's part white, and that makes him an oppressor and a dominator. Um, he's failing this class because of it. There has been a lawsuit filed now against Democracy Prep, claiming the school has violated, violated the young man's First Amendment rights by compelling his speech. We talked about this moments ago. Compelling his speech involving intimate matters of race, set gender, sexuality, and religion. Also argues the school has created a psychologically abusive and hostile educational environment. And moreover, Pete, before I turn it over to you, the slideshow presented to the students in this class included a slide that said, Black prejudice does not affect the rights of white people. Racism equals power plus prejudice. Therefore, people of color cannot be racist. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know, I wish that were an isolated case. I'm well familiar with it, and I'm contacted almost daily by parents or groups of parents who are alarmed by similar situations in their respective schools all over the country. One school that comes to mind, and, and it's gotten a little bit of publicity recently, is Loudoun Public Schools uh, in Virginia. It's, it's extraordinary, the type of... It, it's, it's nothing short of indoctrination, but it's the most pernicious form of indoctrination where people are going through what used to be known in, in, in uh, communist China as struggle sessions, where you made to confess your sins, uh, that nothing that you did, but who you are, uh, by, simply by virtue of being... Uh, white, or in this case, half-white, you are necessarily uh, an oppressor, and you must confess the fact that you are an oppressor. It's, it's indoctrination. It's also compelled speech, but it goes beyond that. Let's put the legalisms aside for a moment. Yes, there's, there's all kinds of bad things in terms of the breach of breaking, breaking of the law there, but in terms of what we want our society to be and what we're raising our kids to be, you can't think of anything too much more poisonous than what's going on here, where someone in a classroom must be compelled to confess that they are evil. And that's what's being done. 
that they are evil. In fact, in many cases, they give them words, the specific words they must say. They can't even come up with their own words. They must say, I am inherently racist if I am white. This is happening K-12 through and also in colleges. I'm not sure about law school yet, uh, but nonetheless, this is happening throughout and it's being ramped up even more. If you read what's going on now, what's being proposed uh, by the Democrats in Congress and in many state legislatures, too, it is full-on Maoist indoctrination. Now, that sounds strange when I say Maoist, but it's true. We have gone to the point now, because we don't have any checks or balances, or very few checks or balances, the Democrats feel ascendant, and their media allies completely cover this stuff up, or more than as I alluded to a few minutes ago, they're actually lying about things. They flat out lie. When I say lie, I use that advisedly. I don't mean a simple falsehood, where maybe they were mistaken, or maybe they misreported because they were negligent. Um, They know what is going on and are saying the opposite has happened so as not to alert parents as to what's going on in their schools. Fortunately, parents do care about their kids, and they find these kinds of things out. And if you talk to you know, someone like me or others who've been alerted by parents, it's something that is it's in, it's, it's so pervasive to be frightening. Stanley Kurtz, who uh, is one of the best education experts in the country, has recently written on National Review about what the the – the game plan is, and it's pretty astonishing. And they're quite out in the open about these things because the left controls virtually every lever of power in the country. They control the government. They now control all of the large corporations. They control most uh, social institutions, social organizations, and they control education, K through PhD. And so, yeah. and because they control the media, they're able to get away with this stuff. Um, it's Your listeners know that we are at a fulcrum right now in this country, and if we don't fight vigorously, we will lose it. And I'm getting, I'm usually an optimist, Bob, and I still remain an optimist, but this is a challenge I've never seen before in my lifetime. That includes any wars that we fought during my lifetime, and uh, going back in history, foreign countries could never defeat us. It was always said that we could only die from within, and it's happening before our eyes. Yeah, Pete, uh, I'm an optimist, too. I'm very confident, in fact, and I'm confident that we are losing this republic. Uh, Pete, uh, and by the way, in addition to everything you just said about that story and then the larger picture that it represents, I can't, I can't let that go without continuing to underscore the fact that this was a biracial kid, not just a white kid. He was half black, and that part was ignored so that he had to focus on his white dominance and white oppressor status, white supremacy, white privilege, etc. His black half was ignored. When it comes to Barack Obama, only his black half is noted and celebrated. The other half is ignored. That is pretty doggone convenient when you're talking about what they're trying to achieve. One final segment to come. I've got another issue for Kirsten out to discuss. He's going to stick with us for the whole... Hey, instead of going full Biden, we went full Kirsten out. How about that for the entire hour? I would say go full Kirsten out if and when you can. And we'll finish it right after this. So, 1054 now, I wanted to hit you, Pete, with uh, part of Biden's speech, his uh, first primetime address from last week. But um, i got to get this to you, too. I mean, it's because it's right in the wheelhouse of what we've been doing for the last 40 minutes. I subscribe to the Daily Wire, and so I get alerts that come across my screen from the Daily Wire when they're posted. And as you were talking, Peter, I got an alert, and I want to share it with you. 
Columbia University, one of your Ivy League brethren as a Cornell grad. Columbia is set to host graduation ceremonies next month. You think, oh, that's a good story, right? That's good news because uh, all the virtual ceremonies we had last graduation season, they're going to have graduation. That's not the story. They're going to have six graduations, six separate graduations, Peter Kersenow, based on sex, race, and income, all in the name of multiculturalism. There will be a Native American graduation. There will be a lavender graduation for gay students or LGBTQXYZ, exclamation point, question mark, ampersand students. Um, there will be an Asian graduation. There will be an FLI graduation for first-generation and or low-income community members. There will be a Latinx graduation, and there will be a black graduation. Now, which one of those white students get to go to? I don't know. They, they, there wasn't one named. I guess they just have to have, quote, graduation. Um, take it, Pete. <laughs> we could talk about this for a half hour. Let me just say a couple things. I'm privileged to be on Zoom calls with my old college teammates from almost 50 years ago now, and these guys are sane. And uh, I just got two e- diff- different emails sent around to our group this morning about phenomena similar to what you just described. And thankfully, they all think it's nuts. They've ceased their contributions. Uh, many of these for lack of a better term, moronic ideas happen to come from the Ivy League. I don't know what is going on with respect to higher education, and particularly the Ivy League, but it's nothing to be proud of. Um, On its face, every single person in your audience understands how bad and how stupid that is. It defies description. We are dividing people on the basis of characteristics that they don't have any control over. None whatsoever. It used to be we saw that as the essence of racism, sexism, every other kind of ism you could think of. But it's fundamentally anti-American. It's fundamentally un-American. We have to stop this stupidity in its tracks. But, you know, Bob, you just indicated you're a little bit, uh, you know, pessimistic or optimistic or confident about the fact that we're going in the wrong direction. I don't know that we're going to be able to turn this around, but we have an obligation as Americans to do everything we can within our power to turn this thing around because it it will not end with the United States getting stronger. When you look at what our adversaries are doing, I guarantee you right now, for anyone who knows history, anyone who read the Verona Cables, the... the, showing what the KGB and the Soviet Union was up to back during the height of the Cold War, I guarantee you that KGB generals are rolling around in their graves saying, why didn't we think of this? We should have thought about this. We could have brought down the United States of America back in the 1960s had we infused this kind of idiocy into society back in the 1950s. This is happening. We're unraveling, and this is not an exaggeration. We are unraveling very quickly. Unfortunately, we don't teach history properly. And by that, I mean factually in many schools anymore. We're teaching indoctrination, so many people are not aware of the dangers inherent in doing this kind of idiocy. I, t- I sometimes, Pete, try to take a step back from all of this, and I try to picture history books in 100 years, and they look back at the era of 2015, 2016, 2017, all the way through where, where, where we are now and however long this lasts, and how they would define this. 
how would, how they would define the deconstruction of the of the republic, uh, the deconstruction of everything that made this the greatest nation in the history of human civilization to the most sad collapse of a civilization in um, uh, in in the history of humanity. I, I honestly uh, I wonder how it would look. But then I stop myself, Pete, and say there won't be history books a hundred years from now. Nobody will look back at this because there will never ever even be a an opportunity to remember it. Right, and, and you're exactly right about that. When you look at what's happening with big tech right now, they are rewriting history, almost like the old Soviet Union used to do. That's not an exaggeration. They're going ahead, they're either canceling the history outright, certain books are forbidden, or they are amending it or changing it using algorithms to do so. It's extraordinary what's happening. Some people are aware of it. You know, you, there are a few people sounding the alarm. Not enough, but unfortunately, yeah. those who could do something about it are either silent or they're on the other side. They're completely happy with this. I don't Kirsten care Al- if the left thinks they're ascendant right now. It's going to end badly for them, too. Kirsten Al, you went pole to pole, wire to wire, however you want to, whatever you want to call it. Uh, tremendous job. You stayed the full hour, and I always appreciate you, but I especially when you uh, do when you go over time today. Thank you, my friend. Always a pleasure, Bob. Take care. That's Peter Kirsten Al, and that's going to do it for us. Stay here. Gallagher's next, AM 1420.